So since I saw you last week, it's been kind of a puzzling, troubling, strange week. Kind of week that at times made me feel like I just wanted to sort of crawl back into bed, find safety. Fear of recession is probably on us already, although that R word is a little R-rated sometimes in our political conversation. We know increasingly about the repression, the continued repression of the peaceful people of Tibet by the Republic of China. We have the fifth anniversary of the Iraq War this week with all the damage that is done to our nation and to that nation. And a little closer to home, we've got a fun six weeks coming up, don't we? The Pennsylvania primary. Now, I got to say, when this started in Iowa a couple months ago, I just felt like the best, you know, citizenry was getting involved and everyone felt so good about this election and I was so excited and now I just want it to go away. I'm tired of it already and it's only going to get worse in the next six weeks. It's become an angry, contested election and I lived in South Florida. I lived in Broward County in the year 2000. Palm Beach to the north, Miami Day to the south. I thought when I moved up here, I left all my negative election karma behind me. Maybe not. That's the case. And I got to tell you, during that really contested time in 2000, it even started to infiltrate into the life of the congregation. All that anger, all that stuff out there that was about the election, that was about who was going to win, who was right, who was wrong, all the hanging chads. Some of that stuff started to come into the life of the congregation. So I want us to make this promise to each other that over the next six weeks and as we head into next fall, we will remember to be kind to each other. I have a very definite preference in this election. I'm going to actually volunteer for one of the campaigns. But still, many of us have very strong opinions. Let's remember in here amongst us to be the kind of kindness that we would like to see, the kind of civility that we would hope there would be in our political life and often don't see it. By the way, how many of you saw that uh, controversial recording of Jeremiah Wright, Barack Obama's pastor? Heard about that or seen about that? I give you explicit permission right now. I give you explicit permission that if any of you are ever going to run for higher office and any recording of me, any controversial recording of me should ever surface, I give you explicit permission, disavow me. (laughs) Say you weren't there, I don't know him. He's crazy. I don't want to get in your way. Say, yeah, I went to that Wellsprings congregation a few times, but you know, I left it pretty soon thereafter. Disavow me if you need to. And in addition to it being kind of a hostile political leak, it's really been a strange one, too. One of our strangest in quite a while. Governor Elliot Spitzer. Brought to mind, brought to mind. All I could think all week was paging Dr. Freud. Good old Sigmund. Paging Dr. Freud. Now, there was a lot that Sigmund Freud was wrong about. His theories had all the sexism, all the mistrust of women's experience that were part of his time. He extrapolated wildly from the experience of his patients into these grand universal themes, the Oedipal complex. We all, all want to do that. Well, at least those of us are men, and then they invented the electric complex. He saw that amongst a few of his patients. He said it must be a part of all of our lives. There was a lot that he was wrong about, and not least of which was that he was so misanthropic. He only focused on the 50% of life that was about misery. 
He said about the best we could get from was absolutely kind of horrible experience that allows us not to function to sort of copable misery. That was Freud's ceiling of what we could achieve as human beings. And he was most strong in that. However, however, there was a lot he was right about. There was a lot he was very correct about. This idea that not only aren't we not in control of everything around us, the end of the 19th century, people were very, very prideful about what they thought they could control, the scientific revolution and all that. He said, not just can you not control everything around you, there is stuff within you that you have no control over whatsoever. It's really opened up a lot of minds and opened a lot of hearts. And he was right, particularly in this past week, I remember this thing, a defense mechanism, what they call reaction formation. And if you know that word, reaction formation, you've heard that phrase? Simplest way to put it is this, that you outwardly despise and oppose what you inwardly desire. You outwardly despise what you inwardly desire. That could not fit Governor Elliot Spitzer to more of a T. The crusading former attorney general and governor who not just went after people who he thought did wrong, but went after them with a complete moralistic fervor and particularly, we all know the stories now, prostitution rings. And then at the same time was spending the last estimates I saw $80,000 in the last decade of his money on those same prostitution rings, outwardly despising what we inwardly desire. And so this past week, Governor Spitzer, he took a shameful public seat right next to Larry Craig and his peculiar wide stance, if you remember that excuse. Politicians, politicians who say one thing and very often the thing that they yearn for and oppose it. I mean, there was not a more homophobic politician in the Senate than Larry Craig. There was no bill to help move gay and lesbian people out of the status of being second-class citizens that he didn't oppose. Larry Craig and Elliot Spitzer. And a lot of the commentators this past week have been talking about, well, it's all about the abuse of power. It's all about, you know, Lord Acton. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And part of that is certainly true, that power can have a corruptive influence. We think because we have power in one part of our lives that that influence, that arrogance extends to everything. But I think that's only part of the story. It's only really part of the story. There's something more there. Because for both Spitzer and Craig, both of these were sexual encounters that got them in trouble. Real power in love, real power in intimacy, real power in relationship comes from vulnerability, comes from showing up, comes from showing something real about ourselves to other people. Anonymous trysts or paid propositions, it is the very definition of a closed off, closed down kind of way of relating to another person in the most intimate way that we can. And so Governor Spitzer, Senator Craig, two men of seeming power, humiliating themselves. I mean, I got to say the person, of course, I felt worse for this past week, Governor Spitzer's wife having to stand next to him in public during that whole thing. It, and, you know, their children. There's no real power in that. There's no real power in living that kind of life. It reminds us of what real open authority is based on. Real authority, not mere power, which is about imposing my will over yours and you're seeking to impose your will over mine. Or we as a group attempting to impose our will over other people's. That's not real authority. That's not what it's really based on. See, this Sunday on the Christian calendar, some of you might know, it's called Palm Sunday. And it's a story very much about power. See, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, so the tradition teaches on this day. And is expected that he will enter Jerusalem in the royal way. He gets the royal treatment, riding in on a donkey, heralded with palms thrown in the street before him, welcoming him. For what 
his followers, or many of his followers, hope will be a way into power. People wanted power, and he didn't really offer that. He offered something different, which was love. And so the week ends by Friday in a very different way than the way it began. Not with a coronation, but with a crucifixion. Unfortunately, still to this day in the Holy Land, violence is very much a part of life there. And so it was a small grace note that I heard this past week. So maybe some of you heard it on Terry Gross's show. She interviewed a Palestinian former militant and a former member of the Israeli Defense Force. They're part of a group called Combatants for Peace, if you've heard of them. It is an absolutely remarkable group now composed of over 500 men who are former fighters. Some of the fiercest fighters on either side of that amazing divide on that intimate land. And combatants for peace are people who have put down their arms and pledged themselves to the commitment that only nonviolence is the way out of that downward spiral between Palestine and Israel. It is the only way out. And I got to tell you, their openness towards each other, hearing their openness towards the suffering on the other side, that's the problem. It's easy to protect the suffering on your side, but to actually say that the suffering on the other side as well has as much value, has as much right to exist in peace as your side does, that is truly a different kind of openness. And combatants for peace was strong enough in their mission. I mean, it was amazing when I heard this this past week that one of the Palestinian founders, his seven-year-old daughter, was killed. Was killed most likely, although the investigation will probably never go anywhere, so says the member of the former member of the Israeli Defense Force. The Palestinian member had his seven-year-old daughter killed by a rubber bullet fired from an Israeli Defense Force officer. And if anything, that brought them closer together. Not tore them apart, because returning violence for violence will only create more violence, especially in that part of the world. What Combatants for Peace has is a higher calling. It's a higher calling beyond tribalism. It is a real openness to understand the suffering on both sides. And I think they hearken back to Jesus, to his teachings. See, Jesus, one of you wore a shirt about, I want to say a month or two ago, that says Jesus was a liberal, trying to take back Jesus from the religious right. I like that t-shirt. Now, I don't think that Jesus was necessarily a political liberal. I don't think you can just say, you know, Jesus was a Democrat, not a Republican. I don't think it's that easy. But Jesus was certainly a religious liberal because what religious liberals do is they look at a religious tradition that is full of dogma and rules and regulations and they say, how do we break this down? How do we get to the crux of the matter, the heart of the matter, and say what really is the most important thing? And so one of the gospel passages one of the people following Jesus around, I don't think it's one of the disciples, asked him, teacher, which commandment is the greatest in the law? What counts the most? What counts the most? What is highest? And Jesus answers this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. And it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Packed into that is don't love others less than yourself. Don't love others more than yourself. Love others as yourself, which is to say it must start within our own hearts. If love is not something we feel within our own lives, then it is not something we can share authentically with another person. If it doesn't start here, it cannot be shared out here. Now, sometimes this is really easy to do. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who doesn't when your neighbor is the greatest person in the world? 
when the light that they see, the light that they have is exactly the kind of light that you feel within yourself, within your own life. That's easy. Love your neighbor as yourself when your neighbor is wonderful. Not such a hard thing to do. What happens if your neighbor's a jerk, though? What happens if your neighbor is really tough to deal with? What happens if your neighbor hits every of your sore spots that you might know? Well, to understand what loving your neighbor as yourself might mean from these words of the first century Palestinian Jewish teacher, I want to turn to a 21st century American Buddhist, Pema Chodron, one of my favorite spiritual teachers. She writes this, to care about other people who are fearful, angry, jealous, overpowered by addictions of all kinds, arrogant, proud, miserly, selfish, mean, you name it, to have compassion and to care for these people means not to run from the pain of finding the same things in them that we will find in ourselves. And she continues, in fact, one's whole attitude towards pain can change if we take this approach. Instead of fending it off and hiding from it and playing defense against it, one could open one's heart and allow oneself to feel that same kind of discomfort, that same kind of pain. Feel it as something that will soften and purify us and make us more loving and kind. Rather than saying, rather than saying, she's saying here, you are dark and I am light. I am good and you are bad. I am pure and you are corrupt. Instead, find the commonalities. This is the exact opposite of what Freud was talking about in reaction formation. Reaction formation wants to divide life, wants to put it out there, away from us, and have this zone of moral purity and safety close to our own lives in which we can stand and be assured of our own righteousness, our own rectitude. But there is another way. It is not the outward despising of what we find within ourselves. It is an acceptance that what is outside is also in radical ways inside as well too. Not always in the same ways, but the same feelings, the same experiences are there if we reach deeply enough. And this is a practice of maintaining openness and connection, of seeing another's life as something true and real just as much as our own. And so next time, which might be even later today for you, next time you experience the kind of person who really gets under your skin. Start asking yourself, what in their frustration or in their anger or in their jealousy might actually be part of your life too, which is why you are responding so strongly to them. Now, this doesn't mean that you're a doormat and it doesn't mean that you're a sponge. It doesn't mean that you are wrong and they are right. It's about love making a way, an open heart making a way so that we don't put other people higher than us and we don't place them lower than us. This kind of intimacy places other people alongside of us, next to where they are comprehensible to us. See, when your heart remains open, it's a way of practicing intimacy of all of life and saying nothing human is foreign to us. Nothing human is foreign to us. Reminds us not to look away or to look past. I got such a powerful recognition of this in my very first week when I was here in August of 2005. It was the first meeting I ever had at the office. And I was sitting with some of the people who were instrumental in helping Wellsprings get together. It was actually the first time we talked about the name. We weren't even Wellsprings yet. This was pre-conception. 
This is way back to the very beginning. And I got to tell you, I was so jazzed. I was so happy to be here. I was so happy to get started. I couldn't wait. And so I sped my way home and I wanted to tell my wife, this is really happening. We're really starting out here and we're starting out well and we're starting out strong. And I stopped for gas, you know, that rest stop. I think it's just before Valley Forge. I think there's a Burger King and a Sbarro's there or something like that on the turnpike. And I stopped to get gas and I was sitting there. It was a beautiful late summer night. And, the, you know, when the trucks were whizzing past too quickly, I could almost hear the chirpets cricking. It was just a beautiful, beautiful kind of summer evening. And there was an old truck that pulled up next to me, an old truck that pulled up next to me. And I saw a guy get out and instead of heading right to the pump to put the gas in, he headed over to me and he said, Got any money? Can I have some? Fill up my tank and, well, you know, I've lived in cities a lot in my life, so I don't always give, to be honest with you. And I said, nah, no, it's all right. I was sort of lost in my own reverie, sort of lost with my own contentment in terms of what was going on within my own life. And then he did something. Instead of badgering me, instead of just continuing to ask, I saw him give a shrug. And then I looked to the truck to which he walked back, and I could see in the back of that old beat-up flatbed pickup truck, I could see that there was a refrigerator under a tarp, and I could see that there was a chair. I could see that there looked to be something like a sofa. And when I looked into the cab of that truck, I could see that there was a woman sitting next to it. And when I adjusted my line of sight just slightly, I could see that there was a child sitting there as well, a child about six or seven years old. And I could see in that man's shrug what was really there, just another rejection. Just another person saying, I don't have what you need, and move on. I've never been that poor. I've never been in that kind of situation. But I do know what it's like, I think we all do from time to time, when we feel that what the world has for us is nothing but a cold shoulder. And I could see for the first time, because of how he was responding, that what I was seeing was a family in front of me. I was seeing a family with perhaps their entire worldly possessions in the back of a beat-up old pickup truck heading God knows where at 10 o'clock at night on the Pennsylvania Turnpike just trying to make it a little bit further. Just trying to make it a little bit of the way there. And I saw that and I said, he needs this. And so I gave him the $20 I had and he said thank you. And he moved on and I said, probably something awkward said, I think, I hope you find your way home. And he just kind of shrugged and said, I do too. This is what happens when we open our hearts towards each other. This is what happens. We see not someone who was poor and because they were struggling was less than me. But alongside, dealing with those same human emotions, sadness, loss, feeling not a part of. This changed me that night. Seeing we overcome our cynicism, when we overcome our closing our hearts, when we overcome that, we can see that people are struggling and living and loving in so many similar ways to what we are. Kind of what Kevin McMichael was talking about. We do all want the same thing on many levels, even with the differences between us. Now this practice of keeping an open heart, it is very different than keeping an open mind. We come from a tradition that stresses over and over again, keep an open mind to spiritual and theological matters, intellectual matters, and it's very key. But I have to tell you that no amount of the correct information will make one difference at all in your life if you have a closed heart. And we've all sat with people who just don't seem to get it. I know I have people I went to seminary and divinity school to who continue to cling, continue to cling to this idea that, you know what? 
maybe I know individuals them that are okay, but you know, the scripture teaches that gay and lesbian people, well, they're damned. And they know gay and lesbian people who are decent people. And still, even with all the information, all the new science, all the teachings about the ways in which sexual orientation is just a part of who we are, still their hearts are closed. Until our hearts open, no correct amount of information will make us change and see the light in each other. Abraham Joshua Heschel put it this way, the world will not perish for want of information, will not perish for want of information in our age, but it may perish for want of appreciation. It may perish for want of appreciation. That appreciation comes out of a open-hearted practice in facing this life. Now, sometimes if we keep our hearts open on a regular basis, we will feel that our hearts are empty. We won't know what to place in them. And I got to tell you, don't be afraid of that kind of experience. Just like the fields right now are laying fallow so they can someday flourish, that's the way our hearts have to be as well too. Pascal, Blaise Pascal wrote in his Pensees and his thoughts, he said, most of our miseries result from being unable to sit in a quiet room alone. Most of our miseries result from being unable to sit in a quiet room alone, that we can't just sit with nothing and deal with it. We think we always have to have more information, more activity, more, more, more. And of course, that leads to the kind of clutter that we're trying to reduce, trying to get rid of that karma, trying to let go. It's better to have our hearts know a kind of uncertain emptiness than it is to have them know a kind of convinced despair. Now, how many of you know the name Dan Gottlieb? well-known psychotherapist here in our area. Many of you know that he is a quadriplegic. He is, from the mid-chest down, completely paralyzed. The story of how that came to be is that many years ago, over 25 years ago, he was headed out to Afrata, Afreda, I have no idea how you pronounce that town in western Pennsylvania, but he was headed there as a surprise, Afreda, some of you are from there, sorry. It's my own, you know, eastern Pennsylvania kind of snobbery here, you know, the middle of the state, Alabama and all that, sorry. He was headed there to buy a car, for his wife as a gift. And the last thing he remembers as he was headed west on the turnpike is seeing a big black tire which came off of the opposing traffic from an 18-wheeler and smashed directly into the hood of his car. And the next thing he knew, he woke up in the hospital. Woke up in the hospital crying with his wife because it was clear that his life had changed irrevocably. It had absolutely altered and not in a way that he would have wanted. And as he sat there in those first few weeks, those first few months, he wondered, I mean, in the most intimate way, it had been changed. He would never be able to relate to his wife, never be able to relate to this world in the ways that he had grown accustomed to. And he thought, maybe this is it for me. Maybe this is it. This despair is too much. I am in no use to anyone anymore. And he said, one night a nurse came into his room, a nurse who changed his life saved his life. She was suicidal. She was really struggling with her own despair. And she said, I've heard you're a psychologist. Can I sit and talk to you for a while? And they sat and they talked for about an hour. She revealed some of the things that was in her heart. Just a few of the things. At the end of the time, he said, here's the name of a good therapist who I know. And he said, on that night, he became convinced again that his life was worth living because of the openness between the two of them. He writes this. When she left... I knew that I could live as a quadriplegic. She didn't tell me that my life had meaning. She demonstrated it to me. She asked me for something. If you want to bring dignity to someone's life, ask them 
to give you something. See, nothing so overcomes the pain of a past that is painful than an openness towards the future and towards the present, what is and what will be. Now, this is, as Gottlieb talks about even later in this article I read about him, it is a radical openness. It is not done on our terms saying, well, if I get this, then I'll continue. He said about two years after that time, because, of course, living life is not easy and living life as a quadriplegic is not easy. He said he was going to make a rational decision two years after the accident that if he decided he wanted to live or not, he would hold that off. And he said he went into a room alone, a room alone, and he decided to pray. After two years, he said, I'm going to have a talk with God. And I said to God, I will live this with this if I have hope that I can walk. And he said, the voice said, no. I will live with this if I can have hope not to be ill. And the voice said, no. God said, as he interpreted it, live or die, take it or leave it. And he concludes, God is not a micromanager. Not a micromanager. It reminds us that the way the ancient Hebrews described God at first was not a noun, not a person, not a man, not a woman, not a being. God was is. Life is here. What is real matters. Here in the midst of us is what is sacred and it is still speaking. And we are called, as Dr. Gottlieb says, to get on with the business of our life regardless of what may come. That is the practice of keeping an open heart. Kind of like Walt Whitman wrote, Walt Whitman who gave us the mission of Wellsprings to be charged full with the charge of the soul. Uncle Walt, I like to call him, in his song of the open road. Henceforth, he says, I ask not good fortune. I myself am good fortune. Henceforth, and I love this part because it speaks to me, henceforth I whimper no more. Henceforth I postpone no more. I am done with indoor complaining. Now, lest you think that Whitman is too positive in his traveling the open road, all that same old stuff is still there. He says, still here I carry my old, and I love how he puts it, delicious burdens. Not just burdens, but delicious burdens. I carry them, men and women. I carry them with me wherever I go. I swear it is impossible for me to be rid of them. I am filled with them, and I will fill them in return. What Whitman is saying here is he is even stronger, even more open than his failings would have him believe. He is open enough to invest even his burdens with meaning. Open enough to say, I will face life on its terms and I will accept it and I will live in it and I will be there with it and yes my burdens will be here but my burdens in time will become victories because they will be filled with so much meaning that my life will become something glorious and beautiful this is the exact opposite of reaction formation it's the exact opposite of what Freud was talking about instead of saying it's out there and I'm not going to claim it it is saying it's in here and it is part of me and it's not going to go away even if I wanted to so I am going to face it I'm going to live with it and that's where Freud was so wrong because if the best that any of us can expect out of this life is just moderate misery then the voice for yearning the voice of that hidden wholeness inside of all of our lives it's nothing but a mirage it's important to recognize this, keeping an open heart, especially when we are confronted with the most difficult parts of life. I think it is only because 
we can be injured so much that it reveals to us at the same time how sacred life is. How sacred life is reveals to us that, of course, it can be injured because it is vulnerable and it is good, not perfect. A few years ago, I visited the Holocaust Museum. Any of you been there? The Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. for the first time. And I felt like I could have spent six, seven, eight hours there. As it was, it was about four hours. And I want to use the word ordeal lightly because going to a museum is never really an ordeal. But going to that museum kind of was. Four hours of viewing the absolute worst of our humanity. Four hours of viewing humans having to experience things that we shuddered to think that it even happened, and of course it did. And at the end of that four hours, and if any of you have ever been through the Holocaust Museum, your soul is injured at the end of that. Your heart is injured. You feel shut down. You feel beaten up to have to witness all this stuff. And at the end, the very end, they have this eternal flame. This flame that shines and emblazoned over it are the words from Exodus when Moses first encountered the God of the Hebrews. And the words that read, and the flame was not consumed. And I got to tell you, that was such a wonderful grace to receive. Because at the end of going through something like the Holocaust Museum, or studying any genocide, or studying any horrendous act of evil, we probably want to say to ourselves, I know I did, what's the point? Do we really deserve another chance? Are we capable of the goodness we think we are? And that note, and the bush was not consumed. Still it continues. Still this life speaks beauty and truth and goodness to us. Still we are called onward into the future and to remain open. Often not on our terms. Often all the Spirit asks us is just remain open. Be here in the midst of life. Be with each other. Practice recognizing that what is inside of you is also inside of other people and vice versa. Practice being open. If we have hearts, open hearts, we will see it that the light still burns. If we have open hearts to hear it, we will know that the light still burns. And if we have open hearts to love it, we will know that the light still burns. Amen. May you live in blessing.